Welcome to Southern Steep, the public health and social justice podcast brought to you by NASDAQ, a nonprofit, nonpartisan association mission to end the intersecting epidemics of HIV, viral hepatitis, and related conditions. Much like brewing stronger tea, this platform aims to brew a stronger community by centering community leaders' voices and their innovative work in the Southern United States. My name is Nicole Elinoff, and I'm joined by the one and only Isaiah Webster. Hello. Hello, Nicole. How are you? You know, we are reunited and it feels so good. Um, We haven't had an opportunity to, you know, co-host in a little while together um, since we've gotten back from break. Yeah, this has been a crazy day. So I'm in between (laughs) eating a a bar of, uh, what is this, a... Uh, I shouldn't say the brand name. I'm eating um, a nutritious bar. I'm drinking apple juice (laughs) between meetings, but I'm super excited about today's show because it focuses on a great state and it has some great women going to be involved in it. It's true. And I always love it when we have two guests on the pod um, because the more the merrier. So let's get to know our guests. Um, So We've got Rev, um, Reverend Michelle Mathis, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Olive Branch Ministry, a faith-based harm reduction agency serving 10 counties in the North Carolina Foothills Piedmont area. She is the director of a tri-county overdose response team and Points of Hope, a justice-centered education and syringe access program. Michelle is board president for the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition and serves in the national faith and harm reduction movement. She believes that honoring an individual's journey with compassion and love is the key to a successful connection. While her faith is the motivation behind her work, extending hope and extending life is her mission. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you so much. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. We also have... One of NASDAQ's one and only, Lily Armstrong. Lily Armstrong is a senior manager on NASDAQ's drug user health team. She works across project areas to assist in the development of public health programs that represent and respond to the experiences and needs of people who use drugs. She provides technical assistance and programmatic support to state health departments, community-based organizations, and allied entities seeking to improve the quality of and access to care for people who use drugs. Lily has worked in harm reduction for over a decade and most recently led the North Carolina Safer Syringe Initiative. Implementing syringe access legislation statewide at North Carolina Division of Public Health. Lily holds a master's in public health and health behavior from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she was a FLAS fellow in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies and received a bachelor's in arts in sociology and linguistics from the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome, Lily. Thanks so much, Nicole. I'm having trouble with my mute button this morning. Of course, we're so glad to be here. So happy you're here. And, you know, just all the joys of virtual connection, right, with the the mute and the unmute. Um, so as Isaiah alluded to at the beginning of the, you know, the episode, we're going to be talking about harm reduction in North Carolina. Um, so we've heard a little bit about your bios, but can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you both into this work? Lily, you go first. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, okay, I'm going to try and keep it short. Um, when I was in high school, I was 17 years old. I read a uh, newspaper article about an older gentleman in Washington, D.C., who ran a syringe truck and did 
outreach to bodegas and community health centers and passed around condoms and was, you know, very much a pioneer in striking it out and doing what needed to be done to take care of our community. Um, and I was 17 and I thought, mm-hmm. hey, I want to talk about drugs and sex. And this seems like a cool way to do it. Um, so I was able to get involved with my first exchange when I um, moved to Pittsburgh. And that was Prevention Point Pittsburgh, which is still um, very, very near and dear to my heart and is a wonderful program um, doing some really fabulous work for the state of um, Pennsylvania. Um, and came to North Carolina in 2014 um, after spending some time back home in New York and working with Lower East, uh, Lower East Side Harm Reduction Coalition. And it didn't even occur to me that I wasn't going to be able to continue the same type of harm reduction and syringe access work in North Carolina. And landed and looked around and said, oh, damn, <laughs> there's work to be done for sure. Um, so I was very blessed to be able to get involved with North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition, doing some outreach and trainings and support. And it still doesn't always seem real that um, I was very much this, the right place in the right time um, to be able to get involved with North Carolina Division of Public Health following a legalization in 2016. And then now I'm here. Awesome. Uh, you know, I think that's a lot of like for many of us in high school learning about some of the safer sex and harm reduction work, you know, other folks are doing is really inspiring, but also, yeah, I want to talk about sex and drugs and get paid for it. Um, uh, Reverend Mathis, how, what brought you into this work? Um, let me just say, I go by Michelle, um, Rev is for bios and protests. Um, but I'm just me. (laughs) All right. Thank you. So Michelle, what brought you into this work? Um, so I started doing HIV, um, education and outreach as a result of starting a support group for queer kids back in early 2000, actually, um, right after I came out and, um, I realized that there was nothing for youth in our community. And so I started a, a queer support group and, they were really um, uneducated about the risk of HIV. And so I said, well, I've got to get as educated as much as possible because when I was in high school, we didn't have that kind of education. I'm telling my age. Um, So I became a a volunteer tester and um, uh, outreach person. And through that work for a number of years, um, I guess about 12 years at that point, um, I had a late night parking lot engagement with a man with a strange accent handing syringe. Well, not syringes at that point. It was really um, wound care kits and safer crack smoking kits out of the trunk of his car um, at the local cooperative Christian ministries where I live. And I was there doing HIV testing. And so I noticed people going to his car and I was like, what are you doing? And I thought he was handing out who knows what. And he said, I'm trying to prevent the spread of HIV and hep C. And I said, by doing what? And he told me, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't do that around here. Um, that's not cool. And he said, well, what are you doing? And so very piously, I said, I'm trying to prevent the spread of HIV by doing education and testing. And he said, well, we're doing the same thing. We just have different approaches. Hi, I'm Robert Childs. I'm the executive director of the North Carolina Harm Reduction Coalition. 
And so we talked for a few minutes and he found out I was a person of faith and he said, let's talk. So over the next couple of weeks, we talked and um, actually he invited me to join the board of directors. And um, I said, okay, that's cool. And I'll help you with sex worker outreach, but I'm not doing syringe exchange. I don't agree with it. It's enabling people. So I did not come to this work easily. Uh, Within about nine, six to nine months of that, my wife and I were doing underground exchange. Um, and I've never looked back. And so we did that through Olive Branch, which is our faith-based harm reduction uh, organization. And that was in 2012. And uh, in 2018, we both quit our full-time jobs to do the work of harm reduction full-time. And I'm so blessed and honored to be able to work with the people that we work with and um, to learn, to learn from them. We are not the experts. We are simply a resource and we connect people to resources, but we're honored to work with such experts every day. You know, you're you're absolutely right that the experience is really from the community and like initiatives need to be community led. Um, I remember first hearing about you and your work at the NASDAQ Drug User Health SSP Institute earlier this year. And I just remember you talking about um, some of your work with faith-based communities and the different sewing kits, um, like the different knit parties. Um, Are you able to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we have a program and you actually can find a little bit about it on our website. Um, It's called Hooking for Hope. And the way that got started is uh, before um, we got officially launched off full time doing syringe access and overdose prevention, we did a lot of work within our homeless community. And so we had partnered with a group called Catawba Crafters in our hometown community. And they're a group of men and women, most of them over the age of 65, who crochet hats and scarves for our homeless community uh, in the wintertime. And then during the summer months, they make um, things called fiddle muffs for people with Alzheimer's to keep their hands occupied. And then they make these little medicine bags that are basically a washcloth pattern that's kind of folded over and sealed on three sides. And um, they do that for the residents of nursing homes to be able to put their medication or their cell phone or whatever in while they're going around the nursing home. So we had the idea of if they would take the reflective yarn that they put in the hats and scarves of our homeless people into the drawstrings of um, the medicine bags, that we could use those to give people Narcan so they could find their Narcan by use of cell phone or natural like moonlight in times of overdose crisis when they don't have access to regular electric light. And... So the ladies were like, oh, absolutely, we want to do this. No problem. And what is naloxone? What is Narcan? They had no idea. So we began to tell them about it. And a few of the ladies at first were like, well, you know, I don't know, um, because they were worried, quite honestly, that they would have to directly interact with people who use drugs. And that for them was a scary thing. So we talked about that over the course of several months while they were making these bags. But it is blossomed into this beautiful partnership now to where every time we get a new set of bags in, they want to know how many lives have our bags saved? Have you heard of anybody using our bags? And it's a beautiful example of how a non-traditional partnership can work with a group who may not want to directly be involved in eye-to-eye, nose-to-nose contact with the people that we work with, but they still want to help at a level they're comfortable with and they're doing life-saving work. 
And I think that is the approach that we take from the faith with working with the faith community is as harm reductionists, we say we meet people where they are. And usually we mean the people who receive direct services. But we also have to be willing to meet the community where it is and meet the faith community where it is and realize there is work that everybody can do if they're willing at a level they're comfortable with. I love that, Michelle. And I love that you you were willing to share uh, your story about how you got um, into this work. It's a beautiful story. I hope that you've written it up or recorded it somewhere because that was really uh, that was a really, um, I think, special story to share with folks. And I, I really appreciate hearing it. I wanted to ask you, when it comes to faith-based kind of harm reduction, how did you go about um, convincing your ministry or convincing the folks who were not necessarily in the leadership, that this was something that you definitely wanted to do and lean into and that it was part and parcel, a part of our larger um, effort to help people that are at risk for or living with HIV, hepatitis, what have you? That's kind of a complicated question. Um, and the reason it's complicated is because I served on a ministry team of a local church for 12 years that had an abstinence-based recovery and reentry program. Um, our pastor um, was a former heroin user for multiple decades. It spent many years uh, behind bars. And I could stand up literally on Sunday morning during announcement time and say, hey, y'all, I've got condoms you know, um, in the, in the trunk of my car, you all know, if it was bootleg three, five, you'd be out there, come get your, you know, come get your condoms. No problem. We did regular HIV themed movie nights, HIV testing, HIV education with the youth. No problem. The first time I tried to talk about clean rigs, it was a problem. And it was because it was a trigger for leadership and for many of the folks in the church. So I kind of was very quiet. And honestly, at the time we started, it was illegal in North Carolina. And I didn't want to drag the church down into that. So I tried to keep as much of it um, from out away from church leadership because I wanted them to be to have, you know, plausible deniability, <laughs> you know, watching out for my fellow minister peeps. But I was sitting in church one Sunday um, and looking out over the congregation and, you know, robe and collar and all that stuff. And I realized the people that I was called to serve would not feel welcome there. And it wasn't that the church would not welcome them. It was that every sermon was about abstinence and every testimony was about clean dates. And I don't use that term except in this instance. Um, and so I really just felt like that was not where I needed to be. And not to get too preachy, but I believe that some people are called to the tabernacle and some people are called to the tents, right? So some people are great and they're supposed to operate and be in a four-walled church and that's where their ministry lies. And mine lies literally on the road, in the street, in the woods with my converse and my ball cap. So the next Sunday, that's exactly what I did. I hung up my robe, I turned in my collar um, and put on my converse. Gentleman that I met with in the Walmart parking lot asked me why I was not at church that Sunday. And so I explained to him the decision I had made and the conversation I'd had with myself the Sunday before. And he just said with with tears in his eyes, really, that, um, you know, he thanked me and he said, this is the first time I've been in church in 20 years. And that was affirmation for me that I had made the right decision. And it was a little while longer before um, I could quit my job to do this work full time. But what I realized was that, you know, the faith piece is so important and it doesn't matter what faith 
whether it's theological or faith in humanity, um, doesn't matter which religion you are, um, or if you're of no religion, that faith is about um, believing in yourself and in believing in your fellow human beings, right? And that we're on this journey together. And that's what we are. Um, at Olive Branch, it's it's not about evangelism. It's not about converting people. And most of the time, that conversation never even takes place. It's just really about love and no judgment and creating safe space. So, Michelle, I have another question for you coming up. But Lily, help me here. So clean date, quote unquote, is that what it sounds like? <laughs> yeah, so that if you are, you know, operating according to a more abstinence-based or... Um, maybe 12 step orientation in your recovery. That's the date that you would mark as the the end of your use, the beginning of your recovery. Um, For a lot of reasons that can be, you know, a difficult concept for a lot of people, but also just, you know, generally in harm reduction, moving away from the idea that somebody's worth or um, status in a community or uh, deservingness of respect should be dictated by um, their distance away from substance use. Thank you. So Michelle, if you haven't picked up on it, NASA is really a collection of subject matter experts, and this is by no means my area of expertise. So Nicole and I really appreciate Lily being here because she's our expert in-house, or one of them, I should say, on this topic. Michelle, I wanted to ask you about um, COVID and kind of like your current programs and how kind of like this 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 current space that we're in has impacted the work that you're trying to do if it has because in 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 broader HIV work our inability to kind of convene come together and do all the things that we used to do in a traditional sense we've had to rethink all of that how has it been for you uh doing faith-based harm reduction during the era of covid wow um I really think that we're going to switch from, you know, from um, the whole ADBC thing to, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID in marking time in history, uh, especially in, in this work. Our, our number of overdoses has increased greatly. Our number of requests for peer support has increased greatly. We never shut down. Um, We had to modify some of the ways that we did things, um, but we never shut our doors. We never said you can't come inside. Um, We always had our doors open. You have to wear a mask, but you come inside our space because we're not going to do this transactional syringe access or transactional interactions with folks. We're about relationships. And so you come in, sit on the sofa and we'll give you clean supplies and we'll watch a movie or whatever. Um, and we'll wear masks, but this is still safe space. The grocery store may not be safe space, but this is going to be safe space for you, whatever that takes. So we adopted that early on, protecting our staff, of course, um, with masks and, and sanitizing every day. We stepped that up uh, more so than, than we had in the past. But beyond that, our day-to-day operations pretty much stayed the same. We saw a great increase for uh, requests in Naloxone or Narcan, you know, the medication that reverses opiate overdoses because people were isolated, uh, people were anxious, people were depressed, um, people were bored, and for whatever reason, uh, increase in drug use um, happened. 
that combined with the continual poisoning of fentanyl in our rural communities, by the time dope gets to us, it's so freaking stepped on or cut with, you know, a bunch of stuff um, for those that aren't familiar with that term. But it's so messed up that the majority of what folks are seeing now is fentanyl and it's in everything. It's in the crystal meth, it's in the party drugs, it's in pressed pills, it's in cocaine. Um, and of course it's in the heroin, both black tar and, you know, the uh, China white. So with all that being said, everything has fentanyl in it. We gave out last year, almost 30,000 fentanyl test strips, 29,000 and some change. And that's just for people to be able to test their drugs because the um, fentanyl has become so prevalent. I, I liken it to um, Russian roulette and I don't want this to be triggering, but I think it's an effective analogy. Um, the old days, you know, you hear about Russian roulette, you have five chamber or six chambers and five empty, one bullet. Um, with the fentanyl in the market, the way it is now, it's like reverse Russian roulette. You have six chambers, five bullets, and one's empty. And I think that really speaks to how likely it is that you're going to have fentanyl in the drugs that you use. So we had to step up our education around that. Um, and the fact that you better assume that everybody has it. Just like I was taught early on, you make the assumption everyone has HIV and you protect yourself accordingly. And so we liken that to how we, te we teach people about fentanyl. You make the assumption that it's in everything and then you protect yourself accordingly. Use fentanyl test strips. So that was a big um, change for us was the increase in the number of test strips and education that we did specifically around that. But like any good nonprofit does who is struggling with funding during the time of a pandemic, we decided that we would start two new programs. Um, <laughs> and um, we did so in uh, March or actually in February of last year, we started a low barrier HCV treatment program um, where people don't have to quit using to be able to access our program. We would have pizza parties and take pizza or tacos to people's houses and um, test them. Uh, groups of folks. And then if they were reactive, do a blood draw uh, for HIV and hep C. And if they tested positive, carry the hep C medication to where they are. We did that in partnership with um, our wonderful nurse practitioner who volunteers with us. His name is Tim and he's amazing. And then a couple of months later, um, we started a low barrier suboxone program where again, we go out to where people are and then they're not required to come to a clinic. They pay for their medication and they go and pick it up directly from the pharmacy, but there's not all the red bureaucratic tape that they have to go through with traditional Suboxone programming. And they both, both our Hep C folks and our Suboxone folks receive peer support either over the phone or in person if they want to come in, but coming in is not required. So we took that on as well. Um, COVID really, um, changed the way that we were getting into the field and being able to outreach and allowed us to access um, a different set of folks that we had not been able to access before. So from that, it had a positive effect on what we do. At the same time, we did have funding cut and we had funding cut um, because the people that we have contracts with have been directed to focus more on COVID than the overdose crisis right now. And so um, that has been a struggle. I just want to express some real appreciation for Michelle and uh, Karen and everyone at Olive Branch. I think their program is such a wonderful example of leading with relationships first and having that really dictate what kind of services are made available. I see 
a lot of, you know, in the, in the general harm reduction and syringe access expansion, this kind of like, you know, we'll build it first and then the people will show up and then we'll talk about what they need and then we'll know what else to do. Um, and I'm lapsed in just about every way, but I was a every Sunday morning churchgoer for most of my childhood. And um, like Michelle, there was a time when, you know, my Sunday mornings were spent in the syringe exchange and that's where we were with people and that's how we were um, showing up for our community. So I, I just want, like, this is really, you know, it, it's really real when we talk about not letting harm reduction approaches be overweighed by public health, you know, norms and systems. And it really is that important. And I think, unfortunately, the pandemic is a, is a really clear example of that, that, you know, in a lot of instances, the resources didn't necessarily change and there were programs showing up, but this like emotional crisis and the alienation and the isolation for so many people made such the difference in how folks were able to take care of themselves. Um, and so that, that relationship building piece, the transparency and trust is, is non-negotiable. One of the things that we tried to do to protect our staff, because, you know, day in, day out, we are already dealing with secondary trauma. We've lost nine people in the last two weeks um, that we know about. And, you know, that is real because these are folks that we have relationships with, right? But one of the things that we did want to make sure is that if our staff needed mental health days, that they took mental health days. Um, that was really important. And so we have a very, very small staff um, and we did our best to cover for each other to make sure that our offices stayed open, but also that if somebody said, I just can't even today, that we said, well, guess what? You don't have to, because I may not be able to tomorrow. You know, really trauma-informed all the way around from taking care of yourselves and creating community for folks to be able to drop in and have a safe space. Um, I think that, you know, in addition to the services you all are providing, like that's life-saving on its own to be able to provide a space so folks are not isolated during this really isolation-y time. Um, do you see a shift coming up about with more resources coming your way? What is on the horizon as far as helping with this huge surge that's been going on? Well, you know, there's the promise of money that's coming down from, you know, the lawsuits and settlements and all that good kind of stuff. But in North Carolina, our memorandum of agreement that the, um, that our, um, you know, attorney general set out gives our local municipalities two options. Both include harm reduction, but one allows the elected officials to make the decision on their own as to where they want to put the money and the other asks them to meet with community stakeholders and providers, you know, a, a select committee. Um, and I've advocated in every one of the counties that we serve that harm reduction be at the table and that they go with that option B. Uh, it may mean that we get less money, but I think it'll be better funded money um, and more intentional funds. And so that's what I'm advocating for. And I know um, in some counties, I believe that that will happen. And I think in the majority of our rural counties, that will not happen because they don't want to talk to folks like us. But that's OK. Um, they still have to designate some money to harm reduction. But that can look like what they want it to look like then at that point. So. Whereas I am hopeful and I always have hope 
um, I'm also being realistic. One of the things that we've never done and not to get too much into, into, you know, uh, how we operate, but we've never applied for a state grant as, as long as we've been doing this. And we didn't do that because we knew that we had funding secured through um, additional partnerships, like with our local managing care organizations and, and um, technical assistance with county health departments. But that's not going to be an option for us anymore um, because as the state begins to cut mental health funding, then we are going to have to um, apply directly to the state. And so it's something we're prepared to do, something we are preparing to do, but it's going to um, be a new kind of territory for us. Yeah, like on one hand, it's more funding and more opportunity, but on the other hand, there's more parameters that come with that state funding. Um, Sure. You know, we've talked a little bit about this, about some of um, the realities of being in rural community with fentanyl getting into the drug supply. Um, And I know that, you know, syringe exchange is legal in North Carolina, but there's been a lot going on, you know, in uh, legislatively or in the legislature um, around SSPs. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the attitudes towards harm reduction in North Carolina but then I know North Carolina is super nuanced in itself. So I want to talk a little bit about different parts of the state too. But overall, can you talk about SSPs in the legislature, what's going on? And then we'll talk about attitudes in different parts of the state. I think the biggest thing this year has been that there was legislation proposed that would basically in effect shut down the syringe exchange, but do it without saying we're shutting down syringe exchange. Uh, The proposed legislation was so restrictive, it would have required us to literally um, identify and mark with some sort of uh, label or engraving every piece of equipment that we gave out. So the syringes would have to have our label on them. Well, if you bust open a package of syringes, then, you know, they're no longer, they're no longer sterile. Um, And it's just not, possible. Uh, Taking people with felony records and with people who use drugs out of leadership positions and making them ineligible to lead an organization or to even be hired by an organization um, was one of the requirements that this new legislation had, which is absolutely ridiculous because we know that that's where the effective change happens and where the leadership um, happens is, um, you know, by directly impacted people. So that was a challenge as well. And it was basically set up, oh, and this was a huge thing, that um, if it had passed, everybody who enrolled in the syringe access program would also have to enter into abstinence-based treatment programming, which is crazy. And two of my offices are set smack dab in the middle of integrated care clinics, right? So literally detox on one side outpatient uh, counseling on the other, and we're right in the middle. And we're happy to be part of the recovery continuum and bridge between those two worlds um, when it's appropriate. That being said, even the folks that we work with in the abstinence-based treatment world were like, this is absolutely bonkers. This will never work. And we're going to lose even more people. So I was happy to have that support, you know, from my colleagues in the, in the clinics that, that our offices are embedded in. So that was a huge thing. It never got out of committee, you know, thank goodness. Um, But I don't think it's dead. I think that it will be proposed in a different way the next year. Also with death by distribution, um, you know, passing, 
uh, that has uh, created some holes really in our Good Samaritan law and our Good Samaritan law really needs to be completely revamped. There's a lot of holes in it. Um, and it is actually when it came out, it was like one of the best ones, but now it's like one of the worst ones. Um, and there's a lot of work that we need to have done on that as well. And then something I've harped on for many years um, is the fact that um, even our immunity law for people who participate in syringe access programs um, only covers injection supplies. And so I've advocated for years that we change the word um, injection to consumption. But when you do that, then you bring up the whole conversation around safe consumption sites. And we can't even make that move to try to propose to cover additional harm reduction supplies because uh, we run the risk of having the whole SSP immunity taken away um, and possible SSPs themselves over fear that we're going to start running um, safe consumption sites because those aren't operating in North Carolina. <laughs> So go ahead, Nicole. I wasn't sure if you wanted to, if you have further questions in this section. Um, I don't. It's just that the words get so tricky because, you know, you're speaking about consumption, but not in a consumption, you know, it's just, it gets so tricky and education is so important, but it's education still only goes so much um, in these, you know, environments. Indeed. So Lily, while you're here, we wanted to talk a little bit about kind of NASTED's harm reduction work, our partnerships in North Carolina and in the South in particular, because obviously this being Southern steep, we're really focused in the South. Um, tell us a little bit about the National TA Center that, that you are a part of, just so that the listeners can be a little bit more um, orientated to the work that we are, that we are doing on this topic. Happily, and I'll say at the forefront that um, our drug user health team unreservedly, unabashedly has a pro-Southern stance. Um, several of our colleagues are based in the South um, and come from several years of working in Southern harm reduction. So I, I speak personally, but also I think for many others when I say it's a particular area close to our hearts. So um, under a cooperative agreement from CDC that started in 2019, the drug user health team is able to provide technical assistance and capacity building to a number of harm reduction related partners, um, including community-based organizations and local health departments that are operating certain services programs and other drug user health services, as well as um, through existing relationships, TA and uh, capacity building to state and jurisdictional health departments um, who are working either directly or indirectly in drug user health. Um, and that looks so many different ways um, I'll start by saying we, in addition to our team, we have um, a fabulous group of regional TA providers that we work with and contract with. Um, and yes, in the pre-pandemic world, we had a big dreams of being able to go out and do combined trainings and be able to work with people on the ground. We've pivoted a little bit, but a lot of those services are still available. So um, we've got regional TAs in North Carolina, South Carolina, Louisiana. Um, two in North Carolina, actually, um, and those folks are available to do like much more kind of locally uh, tailored or draw on the work that they're doing in the region to inform other types of harm reduction in the South. Um, but for 
anybody who's interested in learning more and, and talking to us, our email is drugusershealthta at nasdaq.org. There's also um, a variety of CDC and NASDAQ platforms that you can use to submit TA requests. So it's an evolving uh, characteristic of the work. But um, I think that, you know, if you try to reach out, we'll, we'll find a way to talk to you um, and provide anything from program development, support, ideas, peer connections, resource development, trainings, um, overviews of everything that we're doing. So. Um, very excited to to try and be a resource in this fast moving space. So this will come as no surprise to Lily, um, but just for the benefit of our listeners, you know we get quite a bit of TA requests at NASA overall, and in the past, I would say four years or so, we've seen a steady uptick in the requests that we get for drug user health TA for TA about uh, SSPs or syringe service programs, like it has been a growing, growing part of our work. And the Drug User Health team partners with the CBA team on these SSP institutes that we've been having periodically. I think we had them for maybe three or four years in a row. And of all the events that we do each year, those are the most well-attended, um, which to me speaks to the constant need uh, for this particular technical assistance and how it's been crafted and delivered in a way that folks have been really responsive to it. So thanks to you, Lily, and to the entire team, we really could not do uh, that work without you all. And so we're very, very grateful. Um, and then I'm going to pass it over to Nicole, who's going to ask the two questions that we ask every guest that always comes on this show. Thank you for that, Isaiah. So I'm going to ask um, you both, what do you love about the South and what do you want to see for the South? What I love about the South. I love cicadas and iced tea and rocking chairs on porches. I love the fact that I feel like I never meet a stranger and that when I say How's your mama and them? People know what I mean and they're willing to talk. I love the sense of community and I love, I just love the people. I just love the people um, that I encounter here. That's what I love. What do I want to see for the South? I want to see the opportunity for open, non stigmatized conversations not in the boardroom, but at the grocery store and on the church step and from the pulpit in the Bible belt here in the South, our centers of education are threefold school, mama or auntie and the church. We can't affect what happens and what is taught in school because there's so much red tape around that. And mama and auntie are going to tell you what their mama and auntie told them. But we need to educate from the pulpit and we need to educate from faith communities and we need to educate from the synagogue that people who use drugs are beloved and that they are holy and they are whole. And they don't need fixing. What they need is love and support. That's what I want to see for the South. Thank you. And I really, 
um, you know, even through the, through the phone, through the zoom, I really do feel that love. Um, and I'm sure that the community feels it too. I don't know how I follow that up. And I'm going to take uh, the similarity in our answers, Michelle, as a sign of our bosom buddy closeness and not um, that I'm just stealing your answers. Um, but I, I'm absolutely here for the people, the mystery, the magic, the, I think, incredible sense of possibility um, in the South is something that I really, really love. Um, and along that and alongside Michelle's comments, I would love the South um, to get the respect that it deserves as a place of beauty and resistance and creativity and social justice and, again, the possibility to, in the space to, to think and breathe and, and dream up something different. Um, I'm, I, there was a time when I never, ever thought I would live anywhere but New York City. Um, and I am so glad that I have found the, the home that I have in North Carolina because I get to spend time with people like Michelle and our friends and colleagues um, but it's just, yeah, the space to breathe and say, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. Let's let's think of something else. Thank you both so much for joining us and really just giving us everything. You know, you all gave us a lot of information about harm reduction, what's going on in North Carolina, the love and compassion that you put into this work. and people need love. Um, Michelle, how can people learn more about Olive Branch Ministries? I'm so glad you asked. www.olivebranchministry.org. That's our website. And then you can find us on Facebook, um, just looking up Olive Branch Ministry, and it's Olive Branch Ministry, not Ministries. Um, So sometimes folks get that confused. Uh, we're on Twitter and we're on the the Insta a little bit, but we have just started doing the TikTok. So if you want to see a great video of a purple haired granny roll a condom over her fist down to her elbow um, or watch our Naloxosaurus Rex distribute naloxone, um, then come follow us on TikTok as well. Yeah. I want to follow that TikTok. <laughs> I want to do a quick, Michelle, can you also provide the information for Faith and Harm Reduction? Sure. Um, Faith and Harm Reduction is uh, branched out from the National Harm Reduction uh, uh, Coalition. And if you Google Faith and Harm Reduction, and I believe it's faithandharmreduction.org, that um, will take you to there, or we have a link on our website as well. Um, and uh, it is a beautiful resource for folks of all kinds of faiths, uh, not just ecumenical. So not just, you know, uh, Christ following faiths. Um, and we have resource guide there that has prayers and naming ceremonies, um, all kinds of different resources that will, um, uh, you know, be able to point you in the in the right direction, maybe even in how to if you're not a person of theological faith, how to have those faith conversations with faith leaders in your community. 
Thank you so much for this information um, and for everything you're doing. Uh, you all are really making an impact in North Carolina, and we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. This has been a blast, and I'm so happy to meet uh, you, Nicole, and you, Isaiah, and I'm so happy to see Lily's face. Um, I don't see it nearly often enough, so uh, much love to all of you, and please stay hope and where you can and when you can extend hope and extend life. Thank you, Michelle. Need to find, we a, reason, need to find a reason for you to come to Granville County soon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that was just so nice. Um, getting to speak with both of them. You know, I agree. Uh, Michelle has a way about her. So, um, you know, I'm not an overly religious person. I can't remember the last time I was in a church using <laughs> speaking I statements, but uh, she really uh, was able to make me see and consider some things that maybe I didn't see and consider before speaking with her in just our brief interview with her. I think that the way that she frames her message and the way that she conveyed it is just really, really powerful. And and the, and the story about how she got into this level of harm reduction work um, is, is, I think, crucial. Because, Nicole, you know, people always think that there's some sort of, like, magic sauce to it, or you know, they don't know, you know, how to get these programs started. It literally started, in her case, and in a lot of cases, someone was doing it. They took the time to invest in her and having a conversation with her, inviting her into a space. And then she kind of took it from there, but it took the willingness of, in this case, the gentleman, and I'm blanking on his name. If she shared it with us, the executive director of the national North Carolina harm reduction network. I think I messed that up, but yes. But anyway, I'm not sure if she mentioned his name or not, but the point is, is that he took the time to really build that relationship. And I think when we're talking about harm reduction, so much of the work is reliant on relationship building to people to understand why you're here doing what you're doing. Relationship with other faith leaders, relationship with law enforcement, relationship with people in HIV like me who who don't really know what harm reduction and drug user health is, um, but that it sits so close to the work that we do, like constant, constant relationship building. And in my experience, Nicole, I feel like these folks are really good at that because they they have to be good at that. <laughs> There's really no other, they had no other choice. Well, and they really believe in the work that they're doing. And it really does start one conversation at a time, but also intentionally listening and doing what the community is asking them to do. Because we know there's a lot of times there's a focus group or a town hall, and then none of the information gets transferred into motion. Um, That is not the case here. That happens a lot, and there's and there's a lot of different reasons for that. But I, just suffice it to say that's not happening here. And but it's because you know, not to belabor the point, but not everyone is willing to quit their job to do something that they're passionate about. And sometimes they they maybe they feel like they can't afford to do that, or there's other considerations. But it's a huge sacrifice um, to make. But for the folks that have that have made it, we are indebted to them. Thank you both again. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much.
It's time for a segment we call Southern Charm. Here we highlight the work of someone or an organization that is charmingly impacting the South. On today's episode, we're highlighting the North Carolina AIDS Action Network. Founded in 2010, NCAN works to improve the lives of people living with HIV and AIDS in affected communities through outreach and public education, policy advocacy, and community building to increase visibility and mutual support of people living with HIV and AIDS throughout our state. I wanted to choose, uh, so I, I selected North Carolina AIDS Action Network partially because we are focused on North Carolina today. Um, But also, you know, we heard a lot about that atrocious, you know, anti-SSP bill that came, um, you know, into conversation in the last year's legislature. And NCAN did a lot of great work in, you know, the advocacy and education and really trying to prevent that bill from going anywhere. Um, So I thought it was just really appropriate to... Uh, highlight them in the Southern Charm segment because they are really working on uh, policy change, but also cultivating new leaders and creating community in the HIV advocacy movement. Um, You know, I think that having a policy shop in, you know, a state is super powerful, but specifically in Southern states, um, and we don't necessarily see a policy shop in every Southern state. Um, and the work that they're doing is really moving initiatives forward and blocking bad ones. Uh, totally. And the elephant in the room, let's be honest here, is that some of the politics in some of these states are very is very regressive. And there's just no other way to say it. And so I'm not going to say right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm just going to say that We fully support public health, and some of these states have laws and policies that are not in the best interest of public health. And they're they're made for other reasons, political reasons, religious reasons, um, cultural reasons. We don't care about that. We just want people to be healthy and safe. And so um, we really got to advocate for getting people to understand um, why these things are important. And again, just to go back to how Michelle got into her work, she was doing HIV work. She didn't understand why that level of harm addiction was necessary and important to do, but she took the time to become educated. And so when we when we're talking about lawmakers, when we're talking about leadership in the political realm, they might literally, I think it, I think it is, Nicole, I think it is reasonable for someone to say, I don't understand how giving someone safe works is a good use of public dollars. That's that's a fair um, argument to have or a fair debate to have. I think it's incumbent upon us to explain why that that is important or explain why it could be important to explain all of the, the many, many, many public health advantages to this, not only to the individual, but to the community. And as you know, because we work in HIV, when we have a lower viral, when we have low community viral load, that's not just to the benefit of the person. That's to the benefit of the entire community because we, we're an interconnected people. You know, not only to the whole community, but the taxpayer dollar as well. You know, having these types of programs is going to be cheaper for the taxpayer at the end of the day than not having these programs. So if you wanted to be a cynic and you cared nothing about harm reduction and you just care about money, if you only care about money, then even you have a reason to support harm reduction. You can find a reason. Because it's going to save you money in the long run. So that's a great point. But it takes someone who's nimble enough to make the right, to know 
what argument's going to move someone and to make that argument to them so that they can be in favor of it. And for some people, it's saving money. For some people, it's saving lives. For some people, it's, um, you know, don't want needles on the street, don't want needles on the street. Like exactly. So, cause my kids play in this on, on this playground and I want it to be safe and clean for them. So whatever the, whatever the, the in is find it and then make the case. Make the case. This has been a really great episode. I've enjoyed these conversations and it's always, you know, it's really always a pleasure getting to co-host with you. Thank you. It, it, it agrees. I, I agree with that. And I was going to say, Nicole, I learned a lot today. So I had never heard stepped on, which is a phrase for, you know, incorporating other drugs into the primary drug. I had heard of, you know, cutting in something or something's been cut with something else. Stepped on, I had never heard before. So that's just one example of, the, of something that I learned today. I feel like this was a very informative podcast. I also feel like that relays such a powerful image, you know, of these drugs being stepped on, crumpled, and then put together with something that was not meant to be there before. Mm-hmm. Um, it provide. I had some aha moments and I guess the other thing too, is the amount of compassion, but also the, the drain on mental health and resources when it comes to seeing trauma after trauma after trauma and all of the mm-hmm. community loss over this you know, these many years, but, um, especially right now with the increased isolation, um, definitely put a lot of things in perspective. Agreed. Well, anyway, great show. Great to see you. And I will look forward to partnering with you in the future. That's right. I am Isaiah Webster. And I'm Nicole Elinoff. Thanks for listening.